Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. Each week, you're going to hear from another incredible person who is using the skills and talents to make a difference in their community and about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. Today, I am so grateful to have a chance to talk to my friend, Clementine Womeria. She is the author of a book called The Girl Who Smiled Beats. In 1994, she was just six years old when Clementine fled war-torn Rwanda with her older sister, Claire. The sisters spent the next six years on the run in seven countries, living in refugee camps, surviving illness, violence, until her family finally arrived in the United States in 2000. She knew her parents were alive, but she wasn't able to find them. In 2006, Clementine sat in the studio audience of The Oprah Winfrey Show as one of the 50 award-winning student essayists. Oprah brought her parents on stage for a reunion, and it was one of the show's most powerful moments. Clementine spent the next years of her life as a symbol of survival, of the cost of family separation, and the horrors of genocide. In 2016, President Obama appointed her to the board of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. She is now the author of a book called The Girl Who Smiled Beats. It's the story of her experience as a refugee, but more importantly, it's the story of her life as a human being, not a symbol. So why don't you just start by telling me your name and what you do? Who? (laughs) (laughs) What do I do? That is a good question. I am Clementine or Maria. I am what I do. I always tell people that I'm a dot connector. And dot connector for me, it means to being able to really listen under an individual's longing, community's longing, and then being able to think about somebody or a community that is willing to also listen to that and extend beyond the listening. So I think that's what I do best. Um, I don't think there's title for that kind of work, but in short, I'm a dot connector. Hmm. How did that fit into you writing this book, The Girl Who Smiled Beads? Well, I wrote The Girl Who Smiled Beads, I would say for three different reasons. One was I felt that I had had this whole experience before coming to United States, before going to college. You know, I became this person that I am in terms of on a piece of paper. Y'all graduate in tech and also in Silicon Valley. And so I really wanted to own up to my experiences growing up from one country to another. And then second, the second part, I felt that when I told people where I came from, either when I said I'm from Rwanda Oh, I said, oh, I've grown up in eight different countries. There were assumptions. And I really wanted to get those assumptions to become more of a curiosity, to like raise a curiosity in the person who was asking, but also to 
to also expand and hear what where us also people are coming from. And then the third part of this, I'm just a literature nerd. I love words. I love books. And I really wanted to offer something to the shelves all over the world that is going to be to speak of experiences that I had not yet read in textbooks, in uh, history classes, in literature classes. And I wanted to be as raw and as honest as I can be so that I can own up to me connecting people, connecting ideas, connecting communities. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, one of the things that really moved me in the book is about like the bond of sisterhood Mm -hmm. that you and Claire had Mm -hmm. and the journey that you shared together. You know, how did how did you feel like you kept that sisterhood between the two of you going both in your journey as refugees and then today? Oh, well, when Claire and I started her odyssey, I should say, her odyssey, <laughs> um, um, I, was, I was a child. I was a baby. I mean, I was six years old, but I thought that I was so much mature and I was so wise. And, and she actually was wise and mature. Uh, I was just living in the thoughts of being mature and being wise. And when we started our very horrific beginnings of just running away from everything that we had ever known, I trusted her, I would say about 70%, uh, (laughs) because, you know, we grew up in a community where she was always absolutely praised for doing everything right, and she could not do wrong. And so that 70% was from the reflection of um, all her friends and my parents. And then the 30% of not trusting, it was just a sister. You know, she teased me a lot. I, I was a very talkative. I, I asked way too many questions, and I never shut my mouth. And, you know, in a place of wars when you have to be quiet and not even communicate where you're from or what you had or who the people in which you come from, I was not a very good sort of like a little sister to have on the road. Hmm. It is true, though, right? Like, you don't question your parents' authority, but you definitely question it. Like, I definitely, I have an older sister, too, and I'm, you know, don't listen to her 100% of the time, for well, sure. Well, you know, Claire has this sort of kind of, I am going to do what I need to do, and I need to shut your mouth, and then, like, just do as I say. And And so that was kind of, like, the mentality. I was the child, she was the mother, but I remember the minute that switched. And when it switched, and, 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 and when did it switch? It switched when we uh, we had a left, you know, so Rwanda and then, and then refugee camp in Burundi and she got married and we went to Congo and then the Congo, she had a child and then a year later war started there and then we moved all the way to like four different countries and got to South Africa. 
And, you know, from all these different countries, new language, new culture, we're switching clothes, we're switching hair, we're switching mindset, every country. And by the time we got to South Africa, you know, the responsibility became, she became like more of, I need to go out there and work and find food and you're going to stay with Mariette. And that's my niece. Yeah, her daughter. How old were you when you, by the time you went to South Africa? I was nine. You were nine. So that's three years after you guys fled Rwanda when yes, you were six. Exactly. So this is between two, three years. And so here I am. And, you know, I had been taking care of Mariette here and there, but this time it was like my full responsibility. And at this loft that we lived in, there was also another girl way much older than I was, maybe by like, maybe she was, you know, 15. And she was a bit mature of taking care of the kids. And so next to her, I was raising Mariette. But I remember, you know, one day Claire uh, left me with like a little bit of money. And she said, you know, it'd be really great for you to buy, you know, some food for you for lunch or something like that. And I went to the market, uh, ShopRite, and this is in Durban. And in ShopRite, it's like really fancy market. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was very fancy. And I bought sweet potatoes and I bought beans and I came home and I, and I, I get tears every time I think about this. I came home and I, and I made it and I made it the way my mom used to make it. And, and of course, Claire hates beans, especially like after living in refugee camp, eating so much beans, she hates it. She hates it so much. Uh, but I made it the way my mom would make it. You know, she put like onions in it and she put like, mm. you know, sprinkle a little parsley in it. And the sweet potatoes, she make them like really, really nice and like soft. And then when she got home, I just like put it all on the plate. And I remember watching her and she was like, how do you remember how to cook this? And and I remember wow. seeing her cry. And I feel like that was a moment where we both were like, hey, like we carrying memories. Mm. We're remembering. And and then after that I tried, you know, something else and I tried something else. And then by the time I got to my mom's like beef stew, I feel like Claire, she was like, Okay, I could trust you now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like that elevated into like, oh, we got each other, like he could cook, could take out my child and I'll make the money. Um <laughs> And then the other time was in Zambia. It was like, well, last sort of like, that's when we were like, yeah, we got this. You know, it was, uh, this is maybe, you know, two years later. This is in 2000, like early 2000. We're in Zambia. We're living in this place called Chiboria. And Chiboria is this, oh my goodness, it's the one of the biggest slum, like right in the, in the city of Lusaka. Mm. And it's majority of people are people who fled from Congo, people who've been there from like South Sudan, people who've been there from like all this. And then a major, and then some people from who owned the little houses were Zambian who came to the city seeking, you know, opportunities, but then built these little houses and shacks and things like that. And so Claire and her child, now this time she has two children and her husband, has joined us from South Africa and we're living all together. And, you know, there was some relationship things that was happening with them that I didn't understand because most of the time she would send me away. And so 
and I remember when I had just gone back from Mama Fatima's house, I was a bit confused because there was so much tension between her and her husband and the kids. But one night, husband showed up and he was just absolutely at the most like violent, absolutely the most violent. And we, it was maybe about 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. And he told us to pick up our stuff and get out. And let me tell you, Claire and I are the one who were working so hard to keep up in this little shack that we lived in. And he just told us, like, you need to all get out. And with two kids, you know, Marietta was mm-hmm. about, about four right now. And then Freddie was about maybe a year and a half. And I remember just crying, like holding on the door, being like, we're not going anywhere. And I just started screaming at him. And I, I mean, I just like screamed and I yelled and I was like, we're not going anywhere. You don't pay for this place. We're not going anywhere. And he just like took me and just shoveled me out and then took all the kids and then locked the door. And I remember Claire and I like walking out to go to this woman's house and we knocked and she let us in. We called her grandmother and mm. she let us in. And Claire had it zero tears. And of course, I was crying. I was holding Freddie. I was so angry, like, you know, so, so angry. And I remember looking at her and saying, from now and on, it's you and me and not him. Mm. We're going to take care of these kids. And that was probably the highest point of sisterhood because after that it was just her and I she played the role of the person who was like financial responsible and then I played the role of I need to make sure that the kids stay healthy you know you're in slime there's so many diseases coming in and so keeping the kids collected and kind I wanted them to be the opposite of what they had just observed and what they had been observing. And looking back now, that time and, and now, you know, a few months later, we came to United States and, and her and I, of course, like remained mentally that we were doing that. But in terms of physical, in terms of physical space, we we're not together. And since then, people are like praising me for like graduating from high school, graduating from college, graduate, you know, writing a book, you know, you know, New York Times bestseller. Times bestseller. Who cares? For me, it was the work that my sister and I did to make sure that the kids, if you met Mariette, Freddie, and Michelle, they are the kindest, mm. most caring, loving. Like, Freddie will not drink the last cup of the milk in a house until he goes around parading saying, Anyone wants milk? Anyone wants milk? It's going to want some milk, you know? And, and I'm just waiting. You know, Marriott, Marriott, you know, Marriott so will generous, cross right. country for people. And Michelle, she's a little different. Michelle just give you shades if you don't show up, you know? So all of <laughs> the kids, it's like our, our best, like, sisterhood are the results of the kids. And that is a great honor that she she trusted me. She trusted Powerful. me. Yeah. Yeah, to take care of her most precious, mm-hmm. precious thing. So I want to talk a little bit about Oprah. 
right? Before you wrote this book, many people remember you for that, you know, your Oprah moment in yeah. 2006. Like, how did that experience shape you then? You know, the experience of being on Oprah, I feel like every, you know, every turn point of my life, it presents itself so differently. At first, you know, being on stage, it was like, what? Is this even possible? You know, people talk about wars and the things that separate people, but no one is willing to dare to reunite people and reunite in the place where everybody is able to see it. And so for me at that moment, I did not see it that way. For me was, what? I have not seen these people in 12 years. And I was living with my American family then too. So I had gotten a whole sets of like parenting. And, and what people don't know about that show, it was the trip of Ali Wiesel and Professor Ali Wiesel and Oprah going to Auschwitz and talking about the experiences of family separation and mass killing. And then to come to our moment. And so people get half of this story when they watch this show because it's that highest joy slash confusion. People either, Mm -hmm. people reflect toward me either in anger or either in like, I could not believe that moment. And so to me, that moment really, it was confusing it was very joyful and it was like it put me on spotlight in a moment that I had to and I have had to carry. Some people recognize me being like, oh, I remember you on this time. Or when I say my name, it's like, are you? Or some people are like, I've seen you somewhere. And I'm like, where? You've never seen me anywhere. And I'm just like, <laughs> say I like I'm toying with people. And so in a short answer is that the that moment to me is the it's a holy moment because it's filled with so many emotions that I continue to unpack as I go yeah I mean to be reunited with your family right in front of so many people watching yeah and and I I you know in the past few months of families from all over the world being separated away from their loved ones because of an ideology and a practice of fear. I saw all these articles that were being written and I also saw all these different television news, you know, which, you know, did very minimal cover. And I was just sitting in my living room holding to the book and just hoping that people will get to the book and hold it and understand the deepest, most heartbreaking of being separated away from your mother, away from your father, away from your children, away from your wife. And I just encourage people to read the book, to read The Girl Who Smiled Beats. And get to create their own image and have words to be able to articulate and to feel about it. 
because we don't feel about it. And what the show did, it didn't make people feel about it, but then the follow up to it, people were just confused. Like, then what happens to, what happened to them? What happened to her? What happened to that girl? You know? Mm. And so for me, the girl who smiled bees is to answer that moment, but also to answer many moments of other part of the feelings that were into being separated from our family. Yeah. I thought the other, you know, my parents came here as refugees. They didn't have as many stops, you know, on their way to the United States, but they also were separated from their own parents and their siblings and their cousins and, you know, and it's what people always forget. It's like people aren't coming to the United States to take something from you. They're coming because they are fleeing violence, murder, you know what I mean? Oppression. What do you tell people today, you know, who don't understand or or don't care about the lives of refugees? I try my best to understand on both sides because both sides are fear. When you're running away from your home, when you're running away from your home country and community and everything you ever known, to come to this country to find peace, just peace, just I'm going to sleep and I'm not going to have a bomb being thrown at me. I'm going to sleep and I'm going to make sure that someone doesn't want to kill me. I'm understanding the person on one side who has the cause the fear. And then I understand the person who's seeking a refuge. And then I also understand the person who's an American, like I am today, and also whose fear is projected on other ideologies that you're going to have less because someone else has a space. And peace. And so the reasons why I wrote The Girl Who Smiled Beats was to be able to give people an understanding what it is and it means to be a person who's seeking a refuge from my angle. And that will be able to liberate others to be able to share their story of coming to America or coming to Europe or coming to Asia or coming anywhere really to be able to seek a refuge from some particular thing or to seek a refuge because of economic reasons. And so for me, I tell my readers or my audience, whoever is approaching me asking this question, and I say, everything's yours and everything is not yours. You're not better than me and I'm not better than you and nobody's better than anybody else. Did you ever, as when I was reading the book and um, the scene where you're in the remembrance ceremony, mm-hmm. and did you feel guilt for surviving? I don't feel guilty for surviving because guilt has no place in a person who is survived the things that we survive in Rwanda. Guilt has no room because the things that we did to each other in the name of hate and fear toward neighbors, toward people you loved and people you cherished, 
guilt has no room. Because what guilt does, at least in my observation, it just makes you frozen and you sit and you drench in pain and you drench in almost for yourself. And that might cause another thing that comes out as a revenge. And so therefore, guilt for me has no room in my part of life. And to tell you, going from one country to another and crossing eight countries and then being where I am and then having a full circle to go back to Rwanda, I did not feel guilty. I felt what I would say that in conversation with many other Rwandans is how we do it better, how we teach it, how do we teach it forward, how do we tell people what hate is capable of, your neighbors, people who live upstairs next to you, people who are your family, to completely turn your back on them, slash for them to turn back and try to kill you, and kill you, and kill your whole family. So guilt has no room in a, a survivor who's who is working on evolving and becoming a human that is with all beings. And so that moment for me was the minute that I left Rwanda and I was in a plane, I listened to Nina Simone's Here Comes the Sun, Little Darling, Here Comes the Sun. And I said, if people in America who look like me and indigenous people and all the people who have been set up on, they can forgive each other and live with each other. I can too. And I am going to work from their creative side and their strong spirit willing to rise above all of it. And that is the choice that I was going to make. And I'm going to write this book. So guilt has no room in the person who is survivor and willing to evolve beyond all of it. You know, I always ask our guests about the moment where they learn that they could be brave, not perfect. And, you know, you've had to be brave in, in so many ways that people can't even imagine starting at six years old. So instead, I want to ask you, when was the first moment in your life where you felt safe enough to say no, to take a day off from being brave and being a symbol of hope? Oh, my goodness. I do that all the time. <laughs> you know, when you get in a room and everybody's like, well, you know, Clementine is going to do it. Or, or, you know, they give you an eye or they ask you, so how does he feel, you know, to be on this stage or you know it's the way people language their question or their statement to put you in a place where you have to be either like the token person who is rise above some kind of horrible crime that human have caused in each other or oh but you but 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 you are educated and and you came here as a person seeking refuge so you're a refugee any moments when anyone anytime tried to put me there I shake it off almost like I am just a young woman trying to figure out how to keep my soul and my spirit 
And that is who I am. And if you have not worked to deal with your stuff, I don't want to be brave for you. I don't want to be brave. The only bravery, the only bravery that I wish for every human is falling in love, falling out of love, and bringing a life into this world. You know, and and, and that life could be a book, uh, and that life could be a child, and that life could be a company. That's the only thing that anyone needs to be brave about. And then the things that we cause on each other to be brave about, forget it. I am out. Peace out. (laughs) Well, what a great way to end. This is amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I loved your book. Loved it, loved it, loved it. It was so powerful. Thank you. And I'm so proud of you. Well, I am so proud of us channeling the life that in which we hope for ourselves and those around us. Uh, Mm. Thank you. That was a powerful conversation with Clementine and everyone, if you haven't already read The Girl Who Smiled Beads, you should read it today. Let us know what you think. Email us, send us a voice memo or your thoughts about this episode. You know, I I think that this interview couldn't come at a more important time as we're still seeing the effects and the consequences of family separation on so many children and, and the suffering that they go through when they're separated from their families. You know, often these kids, they just want a chance. A chance, like Clementine said, just to sleep through the night without feeling like you're going to suffer violence or be killed. And she's such a testament to what happens when we are generous as a nation. She's made such a difference in the lives of so many Americans uh, in this country today. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.